Hi pod friends, it's Amber and today I've come deep, deep into the 14th arrondissement um, on the trail of a statue that is not there. We are on Boulevard Argo at the Place de Ile de Seine, which is just around the corner from Donfer Rocherot. And here there is a huge statue base, enormous, looking very uh, proud and on top, nothing. There is no statue. Um, where is it gone? It's got written on the base F. Arago for Francoise Arago, who was a scientist and politician who helped plot the French Meridian Line, if you're interested. And he gives his name to this street, of course, but he is not there, you know, and people are just walking past, living their life normal, I suppose. I wonder if they if they wonder where he's gone, where he's he's gone to, because I certainly have been wondering, and maybe you have too, so wonder no longer, because this is what this whole episode is about. We're going to be looking into the disappearance of this and other statues. So, come with me and let's find out more. So, welcome back to Pan Am. Now, you know that this is a podcast where I try to delve into Paris's history through tangible artefacts that history has left behind. But in today's episode, we're rather looking at something that history took away, something that has not been left behind. So this is the story of death and the statues. Let's start with a story that brings them both together. Amboise Vollard was an art dealer who was among the first to appreciate the Impressionists. In 1895, he held a show for Gauguin, Van Gogh and Cézanne, while the rest of the art world were busy snubbing them and deriding them and telling them they were no good. In 1901, he held an exhibition for a young artist, only 19 years old at the time, called Picasso. Soon, he was also helping Degas, Renoir and Matisse, and they were all being represented by him. He was a visionary. He, before anyone else, saw the value in this new art movement. But it was not just artists that caught his eyes. He also enjoyed sculptors like Rodin or Maillot. Now, Vollard had witnessed firsthand the momentous change in art, and he had spent his life surrounded by the greatest artists of his time. And he had done pretty well from it, because he was right. After all, they did turn out to be great artists, and those initial haters were wrong. His instincts were right. And now... At the age of 73, his instincts were telling him a new change was coming and that it would not be for the good, for art or for Europe. You see, it was 1939 and Europe was on the brink of war. So on the 22nd of July, Amboise Vollard asked his faithful chauffeur to transport him and an important bronze piece by Mayol to his country house. His idea was to hide it away, keep it safe, which I think we all know was a pretty good idea. Unfortunately, on that July day, the road was very wet. The chauffeur, Marcel, lost control and the car skidded before turning, rolling over and crashing into a ditch. The heavy statue by Mile was propelled in the crash and fractured the skull of the now aged art dealer. The chauffeur recovered, but despite being transferred to hospital, Vollard succumbed to his injuries. A fitting end, perhaps, to a man that loved art. 
Now, Vollard knew the war was approaching and he was worried about his extensive art collection. That was part of the reason he was moving this piece and he was right to be worried. The Second World War devastated the art world, the repercussions of which are still being felt today. Vollard, in some way, was a victim of that approaching war and, with horrible irony, was killed by what he was trying to save. Death by statue. But in this episode, we're going to be asking, what about the statues? During the Nazi occupation, Paris and France saw the sad demise of many of their bronze statues. So come with me and let's find out what happens when they die and how to remember something that's no longer here. We started off by looking at the 14th arrondissement, at that huge base of the statue without a statue on it. And it reminds us that something did used to be there. It looks like it could just be a monument on its own. Maybe they just wanted to put up a square pillar for Arago. But no, there did used to be a huge statue of him. And to understand where he's gone and what happened to many others, we need to go back in time. To a very dark time in world and European history, World War II. Let's start with the 21st of June, 1940. On this day, France following a decisive defeat by Germany, was forced to sign an armistice. Hitler chose to do this in the same railway carriage, the Compagne wagon, which is literally a train carriage, albeit a very fancy one, where the Germans had signed the 1918 armistice following the First World War. Hitler went as far as removing it from the museum where it was on display, and placing it exactly where it had been in 1918. He then sat in the same chair in which Marshal Ferdinand Foch had sat in order to sign this armistice. And the feelings of the tables being turned on France could not have been made clearer with his highly symbolic gesture. France had been the victors in the First World War, and now they are not. Germany was the victor, and France had to accept their terms. The negotiations lasted a day until the evening of the 22nd of June 1940. Now, this armistice established the German occupation of France, with the country cut in two by a demarcation line. The Germans would occupy the north, while the so-called Free South would remain under French governance from the spa town of Vichy. And it was headed up by General Pétain, who was a former World War I hero, but sadly for the French, he was a truly egregious human being. Although France's colonial empire and its navy remained intact, the French army and navy were demobilised and planes grounded. The agreement also allowed the Nazis to keep two million French soldiers in Germany as prisoners and forced labourers, while France also then had to pay a heavy tribute in gold, food and supplies to Germany. And this is important because this is going to be important for our story. German nationals, on the other hand, were to be handed back to Germany immediately. So, what has this got to do with the disappearance of the statue of Arago? Well, it was during the German occupation that many of the statues were melted down in order to recover the metal, which was then used to make bullets and help drive the German war machine. The law of the 11th October 1941 ordered the removal of, quote, statues and monuments of copper alloys situated in public places in order to recycle the metal components for industrial production. Now, a lot of people think that this was a German initiative, but in fact, it was actually a French decision. Originally, the Germans had threatened to take the church bells. However, the super-Catholic Vichy government didn't want this. So instead, it was Pétain's ministers that came up with a plan to use the metal from the statues instead of the bells. 
Now, they told the French people, falsely, that it was to help agriculture and French industry, but in reality, the metal was shipped to Germany. They stated, the Pétain ministers, that they would, quote, replace these metal monuments subsequently with stone ones. Uh, That didn't really happen on the whole. Now, in smaller towns, the loss of the statues was felt pretty keenly. These were symbols of identity, local identity and pride. You know, people from those places, the local heroes and figures that have been part of the landscape for generations. You know, people had always been meeting in the square by statue whoever or, you know, going past them on their way to school. And so they really were part of people's lives. And in smaller towns and villages, people got really upset and tried to hide the statues and preserve them. In Paris, the feeling was a little different less fervent, you know, the statues were bigger, they were less able to be hidden away, and they were also newer in some cases, because remember, relatively recently, Paris had been remodelled, and part of this remodelling had created lots of new open urban spaces, and they sort of filled them up with statues and decorations, and so they perhaps weren't as meaningful, they weren't so local to Parisians. But nonetheless, some of them, they were very attached to, and they were sad to see them go. Overall, throughout France during the Second World War, between 1,500 and 1,700 commemorative and decorative statues disappeared. In Paris, this meant nearly 100 statues met this sad fate. But all statues were not equal in the eyes of the Vichy government, who deliberately targeted those who they claimed were, quote, not of artistic or historic interest, in quote. In practice, the works targeted were those that were not deemed compatible with the values of the Third Reich, mainly Republican figures, sculptures that symbolised democracy, liberal policies and anything progressive or avant-garde. The Nazis had very clear ideas about what was acceptable both for people and art. Representations of saints, kings and queens were on the whole spared. Four statues in Paris were classified as historically significant. That was Henry IV on Pont Neuf, uh, Joan of Arc at Place de Pyramide, Louis XIV at Versailles and Napoleon at Place Vendôme. Later, as the culling of statues continued, only two statues in Paris were deliberately saved by the Germans, the Saint-Michel statue and the Medici fountain in the Luxembourg Gardens. Not all the statues, of course, were melted down. Some did survive, despite falling into the undesirable category. So, curiously, Danton, who was never seized, although other revolutionary figures were, and I think we can all agree he's very much a revolutionary figure, so that is the original Danton that we were talking about last time. Now, remember in our last episode, we were talking about Marat, and I told you that Marat had been forgotten in Paris. Robespierre, for all his beheading, got a metro named after him. Danton had a statue, amongst other things, but Marat, nothing. Well, this is not strictly true. There was once a statue of him in Paris. It was cast in 1851, and it roamed around, um, being displayed in different places, until it found a suitable spot in the lovely Bouchemont Park in 1906, and that is where it stayed right up until 1941. It showed Marat not in his bath for once, but he had just got out of it. He's sitting on some sort of mat, he's bare-chested, he's looking pretty sort of muscular, he's got a cloth draped around his uh, head, you know, wrapped up in his vinegar cloth as usual, and a towel draped over his lap. We can see his bare feet sticking out from below the towel. He's leaning forward, looking sort of quite grumpy. He's holding his paper, l'ami de peuple, on his knees and he has a pen in hand. And written on the base of the statue is actually a quote from l'ami de peuple, which 
in translation says, So you will always be fooled, you stupid blathering people. You will never understand that you must distrust those who flatter you. Which I can't help feeling is a bit rich, considering that he was assassinated by someone who essentially flattered him. Anyway, there was also quite a natty statue of Camille Dumoulin, who was another important revolutionary figure in the Palais Royal, and he's sort of shown getting up onto his chair, ready to whip the crowd up into a sort of revolutionary frenzy, melted down, and that's gone. So again, how did Danton escape? No idea, but he did. He's, he's tricky. Teflon of statues. Other statues were only partially removed. So a great example of this is the big fountain in the middle of the Place de la Nation. So today, Place de la Nation is a park, but it did used to be a big water basin with a main sculpture in the middle and surrounding the centre island were sculptures of lizards and alligators and these represented democracy. I'm not sure why, but they did. They represented democracy and so they were removed and destroyed. Now, the statues were initially collected in a scrap metal warehouse in the 12th arrondissement. That metal warehouse no longer exists. I went and had a look, just houses. And that's where they were all kept before they were finally melted down. Now, this is where it gets very interesting because the surrealist photographer, Pierre Jahan, Jahan, I'm not quite sure how you say his name. Anyway, he sneaked in sort of clandestinely and captured many of the sculptures in their final moments before they were melted down. Now, Just bear in mind, he wasn't just sneaking into private property to take some photos. He was actually taking a really big risk. He was taking his life in his hands because the Germans prohibited people from taking pictures and they could have considered this spying. And if he'd been caught, there's a good chance he could have been executed. So his pictures are really quite brave and they're absolutely gorgeous. They're all in black and white and they're very haunting. And he's collected them together in a book which was later published called La Mort et les Statues, Death and the Statues, combined with short poetry-like commentary from John Cocteau. At first, I thought that this book should have been called Death of the Statues rather than Death and the Statues. But actually, the more I thought about it, the better the title seemed because Death itself is very present, as if it sort of participated in the story. That fear of retribution, the death of so much more than just the statues, but also the values they stood for. Looking at the pictures from the book, we see the once noble bronze figures who looked over the city brought low, broken, crushed, their gaze seemingly sad. The whole event is like some sort of terrible metaphor for the war itself. And so this title, in fact, Death and the statues does seem more fitting because, yes, it's more than just the statues dying. As we look in the book, we come across the Marquise de Condorcet. So he was a French philosopher, mathematician and political scientist who advocated a liberal economy, a free and equal public education, equal rights for women and people of all races. His ideas and writings, which are still influential today, were said to embody the ideals of the Age of Enlightenment and rationalism. In the book, we see the photo of him lying on the floor. He is crushed, but he's still holding his book and he sort of looks dignified but impotent, you know, in the face of these Nazi bulldozers. On the next page, we actually see what is left of the statue of Marat. He is lying there, his arm is broken off, he's looking resigned, I'd say, to his fate. The accompanying text reads, C'est couché dans une baignoire que Marat raconte une seconde fois la mort. It is lying in his bathtub that Marat meets death a second time. 
I mean, we know he wasn't actually in his bath in this statue, but that doesn't matter. But it reminds us that although Marat was a complex figure and maybe a bloodthirsty figure and, you know, there is a lot of criticism for him, this statue was reminding people that he was a supporter of the poorest people of society in a time of terrible inequality and that is why he had to go. On another page, the title is simply given androgyne, androgynous, and it shows a figure lying broken and crushed, a piece of wire around the neck. We can't see if it's really uh, a man or a woman. The text reads, Lorsque la police arrive, il ne reste que les traces d'un viol. By the time the police arrived, all that were left were the traces of a rape. It continues to wonder who would want to do this to, quote, crush the breasts, thighs and soul of the statue. The violence of the text and the image of the crushed body are contrasted with the calm, smiling face of the partially destroyed figure. And it's quite a powerful photo, I felt. My favourite pictures are the incredible lizards and alligators of democracy. They look brilliant. They're, they're sort of emerging from the rubble at these curious angles. They feel really real and fierce and mythical at once and add a sort of curious dreamlike quality to the pictures. The accompanying text reads, Cleopatra's soldiers return to the mud of the Nile, which feels fitting. Another picture of the alligators shows them from a different angle, lying next to a statue of a man. It reads, This politician in a frock coat, this alligator, met in a poet's bad dream. It shows how these statues have been thrown together. Never normally should they have met each other, but for these circumstances. Again, like so many people, rounded up and displaced by war. There are too many statues to speak about all of them. And sadly, there are photos only of a few there's no picture, for example, of Etienne Dolet, uh, who was a publisher and humanist writer who was arrested and condemned for atheism and burned at the Place Maubert in 1546. In 1884, his statue was placed on the exact spot of his execution and it showed him standing with his hands tied and a printing press at his feet. And it was meant to be the symbol of how the Republic rehabilitated victims of the ancient regime. And there's no pictures of the lost statues of Victor Hugo or Dumas, of Voltaire, of Rousseau, of Zola, great thinkers and writers who shaped French culture and were torn down to make weapons. How very symbolic. Nor are there any pictures of the statues who were removed purely for ideological purposes and not for the bronze, such as the monument to Edith Carval, who used to be in the Tuileries Gardens in the first arrondissement. She was a British nurse who was shot by the Germans in 1915 for having allowed the escape of hundreds of Allied soldiers from Belgium, which was under German occupation during the time of the First World War. So her statue was taken down, even though it was in stone, just because they didn't like poor old Edith. It's often thought that Paris escaped the worst of the destruction during the war, and it did. I mean, if you compare it to London, which was bombed so heavily, Paris did escape without much of a scratch. But when you take something away, how do you remember what is no longer present? It's like these statues never really existed. After the liberation, the Fine Arts Department of the City of Paris asked the Departments of Arts and Letters of the Ministry of National Education what a title, to create a programme to replace the sculptures and monuments destroyed during the war. But few were. More often than not, the pedestal was removed and it just left no trace of 
that there had ever been anything there in the first place. But this issue is actually still ongoing. One statue that is returning is that of General Alexander Dumas. In February 2021, it was decided that the statue, which had been melted down in 1942 and had been replaced in 2008 by a huge statue of broken chains in memory of the fact that this general was born as a slave in Haiti, they decided that they were going to recast the original statue and put it back in place. Now, I don't know if they're going to keep the chains as well, so that's one to look out for. General Dumas is, of course, the father of novelist Alexander Dumas, who is the author of The Three Musketeers, and who apparently was inspired to create the character of Porthos, which is one of the musketeers, based on his father. So I wonder I wonder if that's good or bad. So look out if you're in the 17th arrondissement. Let me know if you see uh, Alexander Dumas returning. Finally, let us go back to where we began at Arago. Now, the base of the statue is still there, as I said, and it serves as a reminder of what is lost. But let's zoom in and get a little bit closer, because if we do, you might notice something rather curious. On the base is a small bronze disc with the words Arago and N for North and S for South. Half a century after Arago disappeared in 1994, the artist, Jan Dibetz, paid tribute to him by placing 135 bronze medallions on the line of the Paris Meridian, which was the international meridian until it was supplanted by Greenwich. One of these can be seen today on the empty base of the statue, and the medallions run for a total of 17 kilometres, and hunting them out is actually really quite good fun. So you can sort of go from Montmartre all the way through Paris, there's some in the Louvre, there's some in the Palais Royal, although some of them have been stolen, so it can be quite disappointing. I'll see if I can put a link uh, in on my website for a little map, so if you want you can go and, and discover them, and also discover, you know, other things around Paris. Now, before you get too sad at the loss of all these statues, I would like to bring your attention to an excellent article in The Guardian that I read by Gary Young entitled Why Every Single Statue Should Come Down. So let's have a little think about that because I think he brings up some really interesting points. Now, he starts off his article by pointing out quite pertinently that if we're honest, we probably don't know who most statues are of. Um, It's true, there are loads of statues all around. I'm interested in history. Loads of them, no idea who they are of. He says, quote, this is not a particularly effective way to remember people. Yes, indeed. Um, So I will only speak to myself. I'm sure maybe you know who all the statues in your local park are, but I certainly don't. Now, he goes on to point out that, in his opinion, removing some of the more problematic statues is great because, you know, A lot of the statues that we have in towns and cities are of men, powerful men, and they often have quite awful pasts and politics. So he says, yes, it's great to take down some of these statues. But he says, don't stop there, you know, because there is also this feeling of we should take down problematic statues and instead put up more appropriate statues. However, he says the problem is that we don't have too few statues, but too many, and he thinks they should all be taken down. History, he rightly points out, is not set in stone or bronze. 
I'm going to just give you this quote. It's a bit long. He says, quote, It is a living discipline subject to excavation, evolution and maturation. Our understanding of the past shifts. Our views on women's suffrage, sexuality, medicine, education, child-rearing and masculinity are not the same as they were 50 years ago and will be different again in another 50 years. But while our sense of who we are, what is acceptable and what is possible changes with time, Statues don't. They stand, indifferent to the play of events, impervious to the tides of thought that might wash over them and the winds of change that swirl around them, or at least they do until we decide to take them down. Which is pretty interesting because it's true. We have an idea, we think something's very important, we put up a statue and then that is set in stone. But of course, our opinions and our morals and our ideas change, but those statues don't. He also addresses the often touted idea that removing statues, or indeed any historical image, as we saw with our episode on Zamor, is to erase or forget history. And he writes, quote, Statues are not history. They represent historical figures. But to claim that statues represent history does not merely misinterpret the role of statues. It misunderstands history and their place in it. Statues always tell us more about the values of the period when they were put up than about the story of the person depicted. Well, this is certainly true for Danton. He was put up, um, like most of the revolutionaries, nearly 100 years after his death, when it was more acceptable um, to have these statues of the revolutionaries. And, you know, it was showing what people were thinking about the time. They were thinking about the Prussian War. They were remembering 100 years since the revolution. But, you know, I think we can agree Danton is a complicated figure to be standing up in Paris. He goes on and says, quote, So let's not burden future generations with the weight of our faulty memory and the lies of our partial mythology. Let us not put up the people we ostensibly cherish so that they can be forgotten and ignored. Let us elevate them and others in the curriculum through scholarships and museums. Let us subject them to the critiques they deserve, which may convert them from inert models of their former selves to the complex and often flawed people that they were. Let us fight to embed the values of those who we admire in our politics and our culture. Let's cover their anniversaries in the media and set them in tests. But the last thing we should do is cover their likeness in concrete and set them in stone. Now, I encourage you to read the full article and I will link to it in the notes, but I couldn't agree more with Gary Young. I do feel it's a shame to lose art, of course, and to destroy something based on flawed ideology, but statues of people are often problematic, holding up outdated men, mainly men, to be ignored or forgotten and reducing movements to one man, again, mainly men. The only time we often find out who a statue is is when they become problematic and someone wants to have them taken down. So instead, like with everything, you know, history is about learning, about teaching it. It's not about having an outdated statue or picture. It's about remembering it in a different way. You can't erase history by taking down a statue. If only we could. If only we could take down statues and history would be erased. That would be amazing. That, that sadly, is not how it works. Let me know what you think. I would love to know if you agree. Do you think there should be more statues, less statues, no statues? Are there great statues near you that you love or are there statues near you that you think should come down let me know send me a message in fact i think i'm going to set you a challenge take a picture of a statue in bronze or stone or whatever one that you see regularly and find out about it because i bet you don't know anything about it then post it on instagram be sure to tag me and let's all see what we think should the statue stay or should it go 
And let me know, do you think it would have escaped the Vichy government's bulldozers? Now, if you do enjoy podcasts about statues, I'm just going to recommend you another episode which deals with statues. This is a very different type of statue and a different type of podcast. It's episode 252 of 99% Invisible, and it's about the falling of the Lenins, the Lenin statues. But if you are interested in statues, then do have a listen to that because it's super. Anyway, I think that's about it for the moment on statues. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on Instagram for pictures. I'll put them up there as well as on my website. So that's panampodcast.com. Thanks as ever to Christopher for his support, for his editing and his mixing. I'll link to his work in the show notes. And if you would like to support me and help keep these episodes coming, as so many great people have done, then please sign up for Patreon. For the price of a Metro ticket, you can help support me and allow me to keep making episodes. And for a little more, there are even bonus episodes. June episode is all about the peach orchards of Montreuil. If patron's not for you, then you can help the show by subscribing. Leaving a review, it helps other people find the show, or just tell a friend. And I would love to say thank you to some great people who have done just that. So thank you to Atul, or Atul, sorry, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Thank you so much for your support. I really appreciate it. And to Karen, thank you for increasing your pledge. It really does mean a lot and helps so much. Take care. I'll speak to you soon. Bye. Bye.